Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of Criminals, where Alan and I will be curating side B of a mixtape featuring songs about delinquents and scofflaws. Welcome back. Hello. Some good music last week, didn't we? We, we did. Yeah. But I realize now, listening to the, to the last week's episode, I I was tired last week. Today I feel much more awake. Okay. So, All right. Which is a good thing. Hang in there, man. I, I am. Hang in there. I am. Yeah. <laughs> Got to enjoy the last of summer. Um, now, you're right. Last week's collection was fantastic. Um, there's just so many good songs about bad men and women. And women. And, you know, yeah. both. Um, but criminals are just, they're so much fun. And you if know? you're joining us for the first time, this is Side B. You don't have to listen to Side A. Um, it's just a different collection of songs on the same theme. You know, you can listen to side B and then listen to side A. But we did talk uh, last week a little bit about why we chose this topic and what our criteria was. And we talked about how we're just having a little bit of fun with uh, this idea of crime and why crime is so popular uh, with us. Uh, Not not just in a pop culture sense, but going back through literature, you know, we seem to celebrate uh, the villains and the antiheroes. And it's just maybe part of our dark side. We really enjoy seeing some of those things uh, played out. Well, and you know, something we didn't talk about last week, too. I remember as a, as a teen, especially, the bad guys, the bad boys were the ones that got all the girls. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. That's you a know, whole other thing. The girls love the bad boys. So it's, you know, there there is a definitely, you know, a, a motivation, I think, on the part of some people to be bad. There's a reason why vampires and werewolves and are, other beasts are very popular in, in, in women fiction. Yes. Without <laughs> question. Um you know, you know, you try to be, that's what I never learned. You know, I was trying to be the nice, sensitive guy growing up. I never quite got that there's a game to be played. Not, not that you should be a, a, a jerk, but uh, there is that little bit of aloofness uh, and strength um, and, and holding back emotionally to some extent that uh, seems to attract women. Yeah, no, I, and I, I didn't play it then. I don't play it now. I, I don't need to play it now. <laughs> Happily married. But it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is about the bad boys you know it's something primal yeah but it's definitely not me i am too emotional and too sentimental for any of that ready to start i am ready to start okay i get I, i get to start here all right well it wouldn't be a criminal episode if we didn't include mr johnny cash um johnny john john i mean dozens of criminal songs that i could have chosen and there was even a, a box set compilation that came out, I think, in the 90s. And it was kind of like Buffett's where it had different themes. Uh, this one had three CDs, and it was divided into love, God, and murder. Because just about every single Johnny Cash song can fit into one of those uh, three categories. So, Folsom Prison Blues, classic song, uh, one that most of you uh, probably know, uh, even if you're not a country fan or a, a fan of classic country. It, it originally came out in, in, the 19, in the 1950s. It was written in 53. Uh, it was recorded and released as a single in 55 and then appeared on Cash's first solo record uh, in, in 1957, I believe. And it's just um, this kind of, it starts with this rhythmic and almost, you know, it's a train, right? The, the percussion and, and the, uh, the rhythm track is, is, is a train. And this train is rolling through uh, on the tracks right next to Folsom Prison. And the song is basically about an inmate who every time he hears that train pass by is reminded of his lack of freedom and what he would do to be outside uh, on the other side of the bars and on that train and uh, headed towards somewhere else, which I think is a great, great image 
for a, a song. And of course, songs back then were a lot of songs about trains. There were a lot of songs about prisoners, and he just combined the two, and, and he, he, he wrote this song. And even though it, it was a hit, it was a hit in the 50s, it, it really had a second life in the 60s. Uh, I want to say the original, uh, I'm trying to think here, I don't know if it even charted, it may have charted, um, but the second time around, it goes to number one. And that's the live version from the Folsom Prison album. So later on in the 60s in Johnny Cash's career, he really began to have a heart for, you know, and he always did in his music, but he really kind of came to grips with his, uh, how can I make this world a more just place? And he would get letters um, from prisoners because of his Folsom Prison song, um, talking about what the music meant to him and how important it was to, to them when they were incarcerated. And so he got the idea of playing prison shows. And Folsom Prison uh, was a big one. There's a San Quentin. There's a great box set on both of those concerts. I have the San Quentin one. It's really, really good. And he, Folsom Prison, I believe, was the first one. And he went and he performed for uh, for the prisoners. He um, he starts, of course, with his trademark, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. And it's just there's something about the live version. It's a little more a tempo. It has a lot more energy. It has the, the, the prisoners in the background. It's just a whole, almost a whole different vibe. And so I'm going to include the live version because there is a, the single version appears on some of the compilations. So it, it fades out at the end. So we can, we can choose that one. So I'm going with the live version. Now, I was a little bit disappointed to find out later on uh, in my research that the um, crowd noise, some of it was overdubbed. Really? Yes. Um, like in the line where he says, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. The crowd did not erupt in cheers during that because the crowd was very afraid of reprisals from the prison guards. So any mention of the prison or any, any mention of, of like putting down the prison system, the prisoners did not react. And I think Johnny was hoping they would, but he understood, right, you know, they have to be careful. So they later overdubbed. It's, it's still the prisoners. It's still authentic crowd noise from the show. They just lifted it and, uh, and moved it to different parts of the song to make it sound a little more dramatic. So, yeah, you know, I mean, but that's, that's show business, right? Um, like I said, the live version of the song reached number one on the country charts. Uh, it crossed over onto the Hot 100. It actually went to number 32, and it won the Grammy for Best Male Performance. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison and time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling on down to San Antonio When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry
Now, I, I also learned that I had been listening to something wrong the entire time on this song. What's that? Okay, so I, I don't know that I've seen the actual film of, of this concert. I, I think it exists out there. I haven't seen it. And so I'm kind of imagining this concert. I'm imagining these, these prisoners probably sitting on folding chairs, you know, with their jumpsuits or whatever they would have worn in, in 1968, you know, probably smoking cigarettes and cheering and, you know, the prisoners who were allowed to go because they're on good behavior, whatever. I'm trying to imagine the whole scene. And there's one part where I swore he said, sue him. Okay. Okay. And I thought it was because he, this is how I always imagined it. He's looking out in the crowd, and maybe a guard, or not a guard, but a, an inmate, got a little bit restless or whatever, and the guard was dragging him out of you know dragging him forcefully out of the uh, auditorium, and he looks over to that prisoner and says, "Sue him!" Like you know, screw the state. Actually, he's just saying "suey." <laughs> Apparently, it's just, yeah, kind of a, a call out, a uh, country call out that he just threw out there. So he's not actually encouraging anyone to sue anybody. So, you know, I'm famous for misheard, misheard lyrics like that. Fun fact, the song was uh, edited by the record company uh, shortly after it was released. Um, shortly after it was released, Robert Kennedy was assassinated uh, in L.A. And, of course, the line, I shot a man in Reno and just to watch him die was a little bit raw and sensitive based on, on that assassination. So the record company actually edited that part of the song and re-released it as a signal, uh, re-released it as a single. So, uh, radio would play it. Did not know all that, but uh, fun song, fun song, easy song to play on the guitar. If you're a beginner guitar player, this is a good one to learn the chords and play, uh, the rhythm, uh, part of this song. Um, in my top five of favorite Johnny Cash songs for sure. Oh, without question. Prefer the live version. Yeah. Okay, well, my first song this week for side B is by Jimmy Buffett. It comes from the album A White Sport Coat and a Pink Crustacean, which was released in 1973. The song is Peanut Butter Conspiracy. Looking back at my hard luck days, I really do have to laugh. Working in a dive for $26, spending it all on draft. We were hungry, hard luck heroes, trying just to stay alive. We'd go down to the corner grocery, this is how we'd survive. Who's gonna steal the peanut butter? I'll get the can of sardines. Running up and down the aisle of the mini-mart, sticking food in our jeans. We never took more than we could eat. There was plenty left on the rack. We all swore if we ever got rich, we would pay the mini-mart back. Yes, sir. First of all, A White Sport Coat and a Pink Crustacean, uh, the album, which was technically Buffett's third album at the time, is often referred to as his first major release. Uh, it was recorded in Nashville, and the album is the first glimpse into Buffett's Key West phase of music. However, this particular song takes place far away from Key West. It actually takes place in the Mississippi town of Hattiesburg. Okay, uh, There in Hattiesburg, if you will, 
I want you to imagine you own the local mini mart because if you did, you would see your stock, you would see your shelves being emptied uh, without explanation. Um, Jimmy Buffett, this is a true story, okay, mind you. Um, in his youth, um, he spent time in the Berg as as a student of the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, that's what they call Hattiesburg is the Berg. And uh, he was a member also of the Kappa Sigma fraternity, apparently. In his spare time between dodging class, chasing girls, learning how to play guitar, Buffett was a struggling musician. And uh, he played gigs anywhere he could find them between Hattiesburg and New Orleans. It was the 60s. The Vietnam War was in full tilt. Buffett was trying to figure out what to do with his life. For me, it's kind of hard to imagine a porn struggling Jimmy Buffett in modern times. But back then, this was exactly the case. So the song written by Buffett himself tells of being so broke at the time that he was forced to steal food on occasion to keep from going hungry. And according to the song, he and his buddies swore to pay the Minimart back if they ever got rich. Whether or not Buffett ever paid the Minimart back is up for debate. I would like to think he did. I would like to think he did. <laughs> but he often alludes to the idea that he made things right after finding success later in life. Of course, in the song, he has fun with the song saying, you know, you never know when those hard times will hit you. So he... They start stocking up by the yeah, end. So he, At first, they only steal what they need, but right. then by the end, they start stocking up. Right. But... Um, yeah, essentially, uh, the crime, okay, uh, they're stealing sardines and peanut butter from the local mini-mart, and today, that mini-mart still stands, and it's still there, apparently. Uh, it does still carry sardines. It still carries the peanut butter. It's in the inventory. Um, but that mini-mart today has very modern surveillance cameras, which seem to thwart the efforts of struggling songwriters and sticky fingers. Speaking of which... This album also hails the first appearance of Greg Fingers Taylor mm, on, yeah, yeah. on harmonica, uh, who would later become a career member of Buffett's band. Uh, how did Fingers join the band? Buffett met him in college and stole him from Hattiesburg, too. So there you go. Modern visitors to Hattiesburg can still see the original Kappa Sigma fraternity house on campus where Buffett lived. And for enough land shark lager, the current residents might even let you in see his old room. Sardines and peanut butter are optional. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I just love this song. That's a good one. I, I thought uh, I, I probably would have picked uh, Great Film Station Hold Up. I thought about that. But I like Peanut Butter Conspiracy yeah, I as thought well. of that. I thought of Cuban Crime of Passion. Correct. Yep. He, he has yep. quite a few. Um, but yeah, there was, I don't know. I've always loved this. And it's just, of course, I always heard the song wrong. Because for the longest, really until I prepared for this episode, I always thought he said, please don't steal the peanut butter. When in fact he's saying, who's going to steal the peanut and uh, who knew? I'm, yeah. I'm the lyrics guy. It makes sense, right? You need to stock up on protein. Right. But Peanut butter is good. I don't know about the sardines, I, but... Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I can think of anything better than sardines. But no, I, I always heard this song incorrectly. So I'm kind of happy I chose the song because now, you know, should he ever play it live in concert, I will actually... I'm usually the one that listens to the lyrics or mishears the lyrics. Yeah, so. I know, but I am guilty as charged this week. <laughs> so there you go. Peanut Butter Conspiracy from Jimmy Buffett. That is song number Great. one. Great. And another country song. We've had lots of country songs on this. Well, yeah, but you know what? When you're talking criminals, that, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, when you're talking about... Are you saying rural people are criminals? No. <laughs> I'm saying that country music has a subgenre of outlaw It does. It does. Music. And, and, it, and it, it, the genre lends itself to storytelling more than any other genre as well. Yeah. And like we talked about, what's better than a story than about a story about criminals? Right. And we... we I, neither one of us chose any of the real outlaw. I mean, there's no... 
you know, there's no Willie on you. Well, you had Waylon. Yeah, so, Waylon Jennings. There you go. Um, but uh, and you just did Folsom, you know, Folsom Prison Blues. But uh, like Merle Haggard's "Mama Tried," another great one. Right. Um, there's so many. Country music just lends itself to the to the theme. So yeah, very good. All right, your turn. All right. Well, I'm going to throw a curveball at our audience here because this is a, an artist that that most probably don't know. Um, unless you were really, really tuned into the indie music scene of the early 90s, or if you're from the Michigan, Ohio area. And the song I'm going to choose uh, here is Small Time Drug Dealer by Wally Pleasant from 1992 from his debut album, uh, Songs About Stuff. Well, I got a job selling marijuana to confused college kids because I wanna Make some cash selling hash tax-free Well, the cops won't bust me because I'm not a crack dealer with a gun, no gun Pow, pow, in fact, I'm a corporate executive's son Just looking for fun, 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 fun I'm a small-time drug dealer I'm a small-time drug dealer I'm a small-time drug dealer in your town All right, let's give it to him now Wally Pleasant epitomized this indie college rock sound of the 1990s. Um, it was he was kind of part humorist, part folk singer, and you know for Alan and I this this is special because he would play in Bowling Green, which of course is very very close to Michigan. And I don't remember why or how or who, but somehow we ended up at Howard's, which according to my son is still there. It was like a little blues bar in downtown Bowling Green, still there. And uh, really, it was the only place that had live music yeah. uh, as far as the bars go. I mean, it really we'd, was. We'd have concerts sometimes. They'd bring an artist like 10,000 Maniacs on campus. Well, I was going to say Easy Street upstairs. Yes, for smaller. For, for smaller. For, sm- yeah, for smaller venue. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Because Odd Girl Out played there, and we saw some other uh, artists there. But Howard's just had that feel of this the right. old time, you know, dive bar. Probably still does. And so we ended up at this Wally Pleasant show, and I don't think we had. I don't know if we were just there to hang out or if someone told us to go see him, but we became immediate fans. Oh yeah, uh, because it, it was this, you know. Th- I mean, the songs were about what? Bad haircuts and politically insincere hippies, dead rock and roll stars. And this is my favorite. Evolution being the reason why his friend can't get a date. I love this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so if you haven't checked out, go to Spotify and check out Wally Pleasant songs about stuff. Now, he has, um, I think, five or six albums. And I, and I stopped listening to him after, I think, maybe the second record. I had the, I had the first three. Okay. Um, but... He he started to hone in on his craft and what made him so fun for me initially, you know, the lyrics and just how mm-hmm. just how whimsical he was. He didn't lose that, but it became as as he was becoming a better musician, mm-hmm. he stopped having quite so much fun. Yeah, and I think sense. he hired a band. Uh, yeah, where yeah. in this stage it's just him and a guitar, right? Um, singing, so it's very very minimalist as far as the music goes, but the lyrics were very insightful. Uh, and very, very humorous and, and very ironic and, and just took a took a dig at a lot of the stuff that was going on at the time. And I think that's why I, I appreciate him so much. In fact, I tried to, I took my guitar and I tried to write. <laughs> so yeah. I was inspired by him. It didn't go very far. <laughs> um, small time drug dealer begin, 
ends the record, and it explains how uh, basically a white suburban weed dealer fails to pay the consequences of his crime due to his class privilege. Yeah. And uh, he ended up, like I said, re- releasing several albums, um, but really never kind of hit the, the national mainstream. However, Dr. Demento did feature several of his songs, and he uh, was even invited to appear uh, and perform uh, live on the Dr. Demento oh, show. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's very cool. I didn't know that he ever had a connection yeah. with Demento. So he did get some national recognition, but, but never in a really wide well, it's, it's not music that is meant to chart by by any stretch, but that is that's, that's very cool. Yeah. I, I I just always assumed he was local and no one knew him outside of the region. He still so. plays. Uh, he still plays around. I think up in Michigan, uh, mostly for the nostalgia, right? People that listen to. I'd I'd love to see him again. Um, it'd be a lot of fun. But yeah, that that that's one of my favorite records of all time. It yeah. really, really is. It's, you can pop that on any time and just have a lot of fun. Well, it's hilarious. It, yeah. it just is. All right, so uh, now I'm going to have to dig out songs about stuff. I haven't listened to Wally Pleasant in 30 years, so. Um, now I have a signed CD. He signed my CD. <laughs> Not that it's worth anything, but. I was going to say, um, I, I don't know why I never thought of asking him to sign it. Um, but I think because I think we saw him several times. Well, we um, did. We did. Yeah. So it might have been a cassette originally. He signed because I think the first run were cassettes, and then later he had CDs. But I mean, mm-hmm. it was a real small operation. Right? Yeah, I man, good memories. Yep, yep. great, great, great memories. All right, my number eight. Um, this one is by Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. When I first saw this, I thought it was a Star Wars tie-in. Oh, really? Commander Cody, you know, from the Clone oh, Wars. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Is, is is what what year was the song? Nineteen. Well, originally. 1955. Oh, okay. So I wonder if Lucas named Commander Cody based on the song. That could be. I don't know. Uh, the song is Hot Rod Lincoln. My pappy said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that Hot Rod Lincoln. Have you heard the story of the Hot Rod race with the Fords and Lincolns was setting the pace? That story is true. I'm here to say I was driving that Model A. It's got a Lincoln motor and it's really souped up That Model A body makes it look like a pup It's got eight cylinders and uses them all It's got overdrive, just won't stall With a four-barrel carb and a dual exhaust With four living gears you can really get lost Got safety tubes, but I ain't scared The brakes are good, tires fair Pulled out of San Pedro late one night The moon and the stars was shining bright We was driving up great fine hill Passing cars like they was standing still While the original uh, came out in 55, because the song was originally written by Charlie Ryan, it was released by the Charlie Ryan, uh, by Charlie Ryan and the, the Livingston Brothers in 55, I'm going with the version that is much better known, the version that charted. In 1971, Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen took this song all the way to number nine, making it a top 10 hit. Um, but the... The song, as originally written in 55, it tells the second half of a story that starts in a previous song called called Hot Rod Race. That one came out in 1951 by Archie Sherbley and his Mountain Dew Boys. <laughs> so uh, you, you should be able to see very clearly the, the rural uh, leanings of the song. Um, but uh, you, you get right away. If you listen closely, you get right away in this song that it is, in fact, a sequel because he says... 
Have you heard this story of the hot rod race when Ford's and Lincoln's was setting the pace? Well, that story is true. I'm here to say I was driving that Model A. Now, that that is not a part of what is about to come. That is a callback to something that happened earlier that makes the song the sequel. But I wonder if anybody out there in our listening audience has ever heard Hot Rod. I don't even know if Hot Rod. Well, I never heard this song that you've chosen. You never heard this before. It must be a blind spot in my pop culture. Wow, you've never heard Hot Rod Lincoln. No, I heard it the first time that you suggested it for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's it. This is another one that was actually often performed on Dutch. It was not. It's not a novel tune, but it it was performed on or or it was played on the Demento show. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, the most iconic line of the song is, uh, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. Now, the question is, was there really a hot rod Lincoln? Okay. Yes and no. Actually, it was a rebuilt car with the body of a Model A coupe uh, set into the frame of a 1941 Lincoln, along with a hopped-up Lincoln engine block. However, at the time of the song's writing, Ryan built a second car, this time with a chop shop melding of a 1930 Model A coupe and a wrecked 1948 Lincoln. So it is the second restored car with which Ryan uh, toured. Both the songs, Hot Rod Lincoln and Hot Rod Race, uh, they're defining anthems of the Hot Rod community, apparently, and especially 1950s car song culture. Um, This, though, the cover... uh, version that I've chosen. It was the only hit for Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. Um, They were a country rock group and they were formed at the University of Michigan. Uh, Commander Cody, lead singer and piano player, uh, Commander Cody, real name is George Frayn. And yeah, I don't even know where I first learned this song. I mean, I don't remember where I first heard it, but I've I've known it for years and I love it. It's one that I never get tired of playing, although... Once you hear it, a lot of people don't need to hear it again, if that if that makes a lot of sense. So I enjoyed it. Cool. Good pick. Good pick. All right. So I'm gonna pick another classic here. Um, I fought the law by the clash from nineteen seventy nine from the EP The Cost of Living. Of course, this song dates back before The Clash. Uh, it was originally uh, written and recorded in 1960 by Sonny uh, Curtis, who was a member uh, of the Crickets, took over after, after Buddy Holly died. And he wrote and first recorded the song. But it wasn't until 1966, when the song was covered by the Bobby Fuller Four, that it found its wide audience, hitting number nine on Billboard. And that's the one that most people are familiar with, at least from the boomer generation, right? Right. Um, I chose to go with its next incarnation, uh, and it was the first time The Clash found airplay in the U.S., so it's kind of significant for that. 
Uh, Joe Strummer and Mick Jones were hanging out in the recording studio, and there was a jukebox in the studio. And they were kind of go through, and they were playing old songs, and the, the Bobby Fuller 4 version came up. And they, they loved it, and so they decided to record a, a version of it. And I, I think for Gen Xers, um, this is the version most people know. So it's one of those I can't generational divides as to which version you know or, or prefer. Um, more bands, of course, uh, cover this later. Green Day has a, has a version of it that was very popular. Probably the most notable version of this um, was by the Dead Kennedys in the early 80s. And they actually modified the lyrics to reflect Dan White's perspective after murdering gay activist Harvey Milk in San Francisco in 1978, which was an interesting twist. And, and if, you not, if you don't know the story, go back and look into it. But 1978, uh, there, actually, there's a movie. Sean Penn plays uh, Harvey Milk in, in, in the movie. But Great movie. You know, they're, 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 it's a murder. It's a crime. Um, and, and like I say, they, they, they adapt it as a political statement, as the dead Kennedys were known to do. Um, and they, they took this, this song and applied it in that way. So I almost went with the, the Dead Kennedys version because um, I like it a lot. But eh, I thought the, the Clash is the one that the Gen Xers are going to know the most. And it is just, it's great. I mean, the Clash always, to me, musically, has been a cut above other punk bands. Now, you know I love the Ramones better than any punk band. But the Ramones were, you know, I, I say this affectionately, pretty much a one-trick pony, right? I love that one trick. Uh, really, really tight songs, really, really short, tight songs based on early rock and roll. Uh, but, you know, musically speaking, it's still just the drums, the bass, uh, guitar, and, and Joey's lead vocal. The Clash, on the other hand, really expanded on their musical um, uh, horizons throughout the, their career. And they incorporate all sorts of genres, you know, everything from jazz to reggae, rock. Uh, but they also, you know, used a variety of instruments, and they were very eclectic in their, in their, in their music. And so that's why some people, you know, consider the Clash to be more than a punk band, really, because they kind of broke that mold and, and went in lots of different directions. And I, can, I think you can really see it on this track. We talk all the time about covers, people making it their own, and I think this is a perfect example of, of a next-generation band taking a classic song and really putting their stamp on it, to the point where I think a lot of people might think The Clash was the band that, that did it first. Uh, yeah, I would not be surprised if a lot of Gen Xers would think that. Um, I knew the Bobby Fuller version before I heard The Clash, but that's just because I grew up in a home that played 60s music. But it's a great song. I did not know that it was originally written and recorded by The Crickets. Yeah. That that actually is very cool. Yeah. I did not know that. We'll have to see if that's on Spotify and add that to our mentioned yeah. songs list. Well, and here's the thing. I don't even know that I... I knew that the crickets continued without Buddy Holly. I mean, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think they were very commercially successful. Well, no, I wouldn't imagine they were. But I, I just kind of assumed when Holly died in '59 that that was the end of the crickets. So, sure. yeah, learned a few new things here. That's very cool. All right, well, my number nine song on our playlist, uh, which makes it the third, third, yeah, third for side B. I'm going to go with Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen. Standing on her front lawn, 
Just a twirling her baton Me and her went for rides And ten innocent people down From the town of Lincoln, Nebraska With a sawed-off 410 on my lap Through the badlands of Wyoming I killed everything in my back It's the self-titled cut from the album uh, from 1982. And this one saw Springsteen working by himself. Uh, the band was not with him, which is very evident if you listen to the music. Uh, what What is so fascinating about this song is that um, Springsteen recorded all the songs for the album himself. Uh, he recorded the songs at his house with a four-track recorder, and after playing them uh, to the E Street Band, he decided they worked best as they were. Yeah, they actually re- recorded some of them. Yeah. There are versions out there, I guess, of, of the East Street Band um, playing on these tracks. But yeah, they didn't They didn't contain th- the tone and the vibe and the feeling that Springsteen got in, you know, in his, his home studio. Yep. So, yeah, it's it's just Springsteen and his guitar. Which is, it's surprising, too, because the recording was on a four track, you know, and this, again, before computers. So it was it's a very, very rough recording. And um, I think the record company was reluctant to release it because the sound quality is they would consider subpar. Right. But to me, it fits for the music and, oh, yeah. and, and the subject of the songs. Yep. No, I agree. Um, I chose this song, though. Uh, it is the only only song that I brought with me uh, last week or this week that is a true story. Um you know, Nebraska, really, it's just another Springsteen song about a boy and a car and a girl <laughs> when you get right down to it. Except this time, uh, the driver offering to whisk his gal away from her town full of losers is Charlie Starkweather. Uh, he was the real life uh, serial killer who rampaged through the American West for two months in the late 50s. Was that the same in cold blood that the um, uh, Truman Capote wrote about? I believe the same? so. See, I, don't, I don't know my serial killer history. I believe. I, I, I always. Assumed, I don't want to say that with certainty, but I'm okay. pretty sure. I've, I always I've thought never that the, the song was about that, but I don't. Yeah, know. I've, I've never read the book. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's definitely the Starkweather uh, serial killings, and uh, well, certainly Natural Born Killers is based right on this as well. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, Starkweather was in the company uh, of his pretty baby. Uh, that's what he. She, it's what he called her. It's how she was identified. Pretty Baby was a 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugate. And together, they killed 11 people in Nebraska and brought out fears that rebellious movies and rock music were creating a new breed of offenders. So We've heard that line before. We've heard it before, yep. Springsteen, actually, he almost named, uh, he almost titled the song Starkweather which uh, I did not know. It, it was almost Stark Weather, which I'm assuming probably would have changed the name of the album as well. By the way, that In Cold Blood was about a different uh, serial killer in 1959. Uh, it was the uh, the Cluter family in Kansas. Okay. Pretty close to Nebraska, so I think I was, you know, yeah. I, I can be excused for assuming the song was about that. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, as far as the song goes, though, 
Bruce had given voice to Desperate Souls before. I mean, that, that's his shtick. Um, but he had, you know, they were usually good people falling on hard times. I mean, that, that's Springsteen's mantra. He had never sung about tramps like these. And his draw on the on this song, I mean, it takes on an appropriately sociopathic chill. I, I hear the song and it just, there's something truly frightening about this song to me. You know, and his harmonica, it scrapes like, like a rusty weather vane, you know, on top of an abandoned barn uh, in, in some ways. Um, in fact, when Charlie's captors demand to know the reasons for his cruelty, we're at the moment of all horror movie fans, we're, we're at that moment that all, how do I want to say this? We're at the moment that all horror movie fans will recognize where the psychotherapeutic explanation surfaces, Starkweather's flat shrug of a rationale is simply, there's just a meanness in this world, you know? It's truly one of the most frightening songs Springsteen has ever recorded, I think, because, of course, it's it's real. Um, introducing this song at a 1990 concert in L.A., Springsteen uh, actually explained, he said, this is a story about disconnection and isolation, I've always been fighting between feeling really isolated and looking to make some connection or, or find some community to belong to. I guess that's why I picked up the guitar initially. I spent enormous periods of time feeling very isolated. I guess this is a song about what happens when that side of you gets really set loose and you don't feel the connections and you don't feel what sense laws make or morality makes and then you're gone. So there you go. My yeah, the whole album Nebraska, I think... This may be controversial. I think it's his finest collection of music. Not my favorite. Not my favorite record to listen to. Um, far more albums, you know, that, that qualify for that. But if you just want to take it as a, as a literary study yeah, of how an artist kind of crawls into these characters that he creates, and we see these characters, and, and most of these characters are in very, very dark places, through their eyes, and so you can see this this serial killer like driving down the street. You know, um, of course, there's there's uh, what else is on that album? State Trooper, yeah, um, Highway Patrolman, which is just like a short story in and of itself. There are just so many stories about these characters that are are down and out, and they're looking for a reason to believe. Right to to quote another song from that album, and so that matches with the rawness of their recording. And there are no frills. There is no slick production. Um, this is Springsteen, uh, almost like a Hemingway or a, a Mark Twain or name your literary great who was able to just represent characters in their purest form. Uh, John Steinbeck, probably the best example. Oh, yeah. Very, very Steinbeckian, if that's a word. And that just, it just it's, it's so good. Not an easy album to listen to. You have to be in the mood. Mm -hmm. And I would argue it's an album that you need to listen to top to bottom. It's not a very long record. But it's one of those where if you're driving by yourself or you're just you know, taking a long walk, listen to it, pay attention to the lyrics, pay attention to the sound. It's a, it's a true masterpiece. It is. And you know, he's, he's done the same formula since. And I think of like the Ghost and Tom Drode. You know, it's great album, right? But it is not Nebraska. It's not Nebraska. Yeah. He tried to get to that place, and he got close. But it's still the production, even though it's stripped down, is it, it, it's slicker. It's done in a professional yeah. studio, exactly. And there are highlights on those albums. Another one was Devils and Dust. Yeah, there are highlights on those albums that are very good. But top to bottom, 
I, I'm sorry. I think Nebraska is his finest piece of work. Yeah, no, I I do not disagree. Definitely not my favorite. I, I agree with that as yeah, well. Right, right. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, the the record label was not happy with the release of this album. That's that's why um, immediately after we get born in the USA. Right. Yeah, that was the deal that that yeah. uh, he, they would let him release his little art project here um, as long as he had a huge hit. Right. And then the record company wasn't convinced that they had one on board. Yeah, he had like 50 songs and right. they didn't see a single in any of them. Yeah, so Dancing in the Dark was what followed, you know, in the end. I love that story. He gets really angry and says, fine, I'll write you a hit. And he locks himself in a room for like an hour and he comes out with Dancing in the Dark. He goes, there, there's your hit. Yep. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. And that song and six others from that album went to the top 10. So yep. he knew what he was doing. He did. All right, it is your turn. Well, I guess we're going to be a little uncle heavy on this episode because we've talked about Buffett, we've talked about Springsteen, and now we're going to talk about Billy Joel. Yep. <laughs> but it makes sense because they're, they're the uncles for a reason. Um, these are artists that explore all sorts of different circumstances and characters, and it would make sense that criminals would uh, fall into their repertoire as well. Uh, I am going to go with The Ballad of Billy the Kid from Billy Joel, 1972, off his debut album, Piano Man. This song is problematic, <laughs> and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Just a little bit. Not necessarily in a political sense, but we'll get to that. But this epic-sounding uh, Copeland-esque composition um, just, it, it, it's kind of over the top. It isn't. It is. It's over the top. But Joel wanted to experiment. He was very experimental in those, if you listen to those early records, you know, everything from Ruby Rag to Travel and Prayer to Piano Man, he was trying out. He's trying to find his voice. He's trying to find, you know, who he's going to be as an artist. And, you know, he's a piano player first, and he's very, very talented uh, classical uh, pianist. Classically right? trained, yep. And, and, and in the Copeland uh, type of, of tradition, he wanted to um, experiment with not only Impressionist music, which in classical music is very epic sounding, uh, but the Impressionist lyrics as well which favors imagery over accuracy yeah okay so for example billy the kid was shot by pat garrett we all know that uh in this song he is hanged um why i got to imagine it's because in joel's idea of western justice 
the hanging was a much better image yeah. to end the song with. Um, I, I think he joked one time in a storytelling um, that, that he, he knew nothing. For being a history guy, he knew nothing about Billy the Kid. To him, the West was like, you know, Ohio, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, there's just a lot of lot of inaccuracies where Billy the Kid actually roamed and, and, and what he did and so forth were all yeah. wrong. Well, you know, if you ever see him live, because he plays this still. I mean, it's, it's almost one of those songs that's guaranteed to be played most concerts. He He, he introduces the song saying... Nothing in the song is correct. Right, right. Not, nothing. Right. He, I mean, he says that, you know, his entire life he wanted to write, uh, he wanted to score, essentially, mm-hmm. a, a Western. Yep. And since no one ever afforded him that opportunity, he decided to write his own. And he said, you know, he was just going to have fun with it. Yeah, nothing in this song is nothing in this song is <laughs> His accurate. name, Billy the Kid. Yeah. Uh, but it's cool. At the last verse, um, then there's an image, uh, you know, of a boy on, on a bicycle with a six-pack, right? Um in Oyster Bay, and a lot of people assumed that was Billy, but actually um, it was somebody that he knew yeah. um, that he added to the song. But it's kind of a way of, you know, connecting the past to the present. So the song was later rearranged um, and for live versions. Okay, we talked about this, but, you know, Billy kind of had, had session musicians the first couple albums. Um, Turnstiles, he, he tried to produce himself, which I love Turnstiles. It's my favorite Billy Joel album. I think it's a little bit underbaked. Um, and then smartly, Columbia Records brought in um, master producer Phil Ramone, and that was the marriage that had to happen, right? That produced with The Stranger and 52nd Street and Glass Houses and the rest is history. So there are all these great songs hanging out there, and Phil Ramone really kind of wanted to, to bring them back to light. And so he kind of rearranged them with Billy and recorded some live shows, and that's when Songs in the Attic came out in 1981, which are a lot of these older songs kind of reimagined. And uh, so you can, you can hear it on, on that, one, on that uh, album as well. If, are you a family guy? Oh, yeah. Fan? Yeah. Okay. If you haven't watched Dial Meg for Murder, which is one of my favorite episodes. Great episode. Uh, the, gee, there's a random part in Family Guy? Yes. There's a random <laughs> part in Family Guy in this episode where Peter decides to be a rodeo cowboy and it is scored to Ballad of Billy the Kid. And intercut between these rodeo scenes, you see Peter at the piano playing the piano parts. And so as a Gen Xer, and, and to me, Family Guy maybe the greatest Gen X satirical cartoon. I mean, you obviously have the symptoms. Or <laughs> you obviously have the <laughs> Simpsons. That's okay. I'm tripping over my words on it. The Simpsons, which is also obviously satirical uh, and very, very funny. But it's just something about Family Guy and the randomness of it that really, I think, represents Generation X better than, than anything. I even started, I, I'm sure you're a fan. I started watching Rick and Morty. Oh, yeah. I had not watched that before, and I'm, I'm loving that. But still, Family Guy just... That hits where where we are. You know, mm-hmm. Seth MacFarlane is a Gen Xer. That's very very clear. And so the fact that he took this song that we we grew up listening to and and, and had a minute and a half section, yeah. <laughs> a random section of the television show devoted to this, just brilliant. Oh, it's it's just fantastic, brilliant. and it's a song that if you're not a Billy Joel fan, you didn't you've never heard this song. So I mean, it, it's that that makes it even more special is that you know he picks something obscure to to have fun with yeah the critics didn't like it of course that's nothing new the critics didn't like most of what billy joel did it is over the top um i've said that a lot these episodes this is also special for me because it's one of the first songs i remember my dad playing in the car uh, he played. He was a big fan of the Beatles and Wings and Billy Joel. And I remember. I don't know if it was the Songs in the Attic version or if it was the original Piano Man version. But I just remember. And of course, that makes sense, right? Because it's so cinematic. Right. And as a kid, you know, when you're listening to the song, anything with a story, you're going to latch on to. So oh, yeah. I always loved this song. Absolutely. Um, now it's one of my favorites. 
on it's it's one of the three great songs on his first album. Yep. Really. Yep. Now and the other two Captain Jack. Captain Jack and Piano Man. Piano Man. Yeah. yeah. Um now do not feel the symptoms. I I <laughs> I am tripping over my I mean this week I'm actually awake. Last week I wasn't. I'm still tripping over everything I'm trying to say. It's gonna be one of the sloppiest edits you ever do. So I apologize for that. <laughs> um but that's okay, because it's the music that matters. We are a mixtape podcast. Uh, my next song is by Bon Jovi, and it is titled Blaze of Glory. hit from 1990 featured in the movie Young Guns 2 which is kind of a broad pack western right didn't it have yeah, yeah in some ways I mean it uh, oh, I didn't look up the, the full cast but it Lou was Diamond Ke- Phillips was Lou in Diamond it. Phillips Kiefer Sutherland Emilio Estevez was Charlie Sheen in it I, I don't can't, know can't there remember was a lot of, I never saw the movie yeah so. and there, you never saw the, well I didn't part two yeah but you never saw I the never original. saw Young Guns wow never saw it that surprises me. At the time, I wasn't into the Westerns. I like Westerns now. I appreciate them. But at the time, I just wasn't into Westerns. Yeah, well, I, I never really was either. But this this is a Gen X staple. You have to go watch it sometime. Okay, all right. Uh, it's been years since I've seen it. Um, my my wife loves Young Guns. Actually, I know so many people who love Young Guns. Is it is it based on an actual gang of... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, from, it's, 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 it's... It's historically based? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's been years since I've seen it as well. Uh, bon Jovi, he, he wrote the song after borrowing a script from the movie from his friend Emilio Estevez, actually. Um, bon Jovi showed up on the set in New Mexico with an acoustic guitar, and he wrote the song actually on a napkin in a diner uh, near the set of the film. Emilio Estevez apparently still has uh, that napkin framed on a wall in his home, so it's kind of cool. Uh, he played the finished song for the film's screenwriter, John Fusco. Fusco had actually used Wanted Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi as mood music when writing the first Young Guns film. So, of course, he, he loved uh, Blaze of Glory, and he put it into the movie. Bon Jovi recorded this as a solo project while he was taking a break from his band. Uh, not only did he branch out from the group, but he also made his first foray into acting, appearing in the film as a pit inmate who is shot back into the pit. So this is a solo, or did he record it with Bon Jovi later? No, no so, this so, is a solo. Yeah, okay. this is a solo solo performance. Um, the song was nominated, but did not win an Oscar for Best Original Song in 91. It actually lost to Madonna's Sooner or Later from Dick Tracy. A Madonna song I can't I don't even remember, remember that song. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't either, but 
That's, and that's because Warren Beatty was in it, and he's old Hollywood. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, but yeah, I I was really shocked by that because I, when I think of all the movies that she has used in films, I do not know this title at all sooner or later. Well, yeah, um, even the ones like Who's That Girl and... and um, uh, what, uh, come Cra- on. Crazy for You, This Used to Be My Playground. Into the Groove from Desperately Seeking Susan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There, there's been... Um, the one from With Honors. Um, well, that was This Used to Be My... No, no, that's not it. Yeah, this no. Used, this Used to Be My Playground was no, the Le- one, League of Our Own. The it one was, from uh, With Honors I almost used in our friendship episode. Right, it's... Uh, um, oh, sorry, keep talking, I'm going to look it up. I, I, <laughs> I don't know why I'm blanking, I know the song. Um, all right, well, regardless... Um, he did get the band back together to perform the song at the Academy Awards telecast. So he, did, he didn't go solo for long. The song may not have won the Oscar, but it did win the Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song. Um, By the way, the Madonna song, and this is ironic now, the song is called I'll Remember. I'll Remember, yeah. And I didn't remember, so. That actually is. <laughs> that's actually really funny. Uh, so... Um, but Bon Jovi, he ended up recording a whole album of songs inspired by Young Guns 2, which was released a week after the film. And the the album itself was titled Blades of Glory as well. Uh, it was his first solo album. It sold over two million copies. And to play on the album, he recruited some big names, including Elton John, Little Richard, Jeff Beck. Um, Beck actually plays gu- the side guitar on this track. Randy Jackson... American Idol's Randy Jackson appears on the album. He he actually plays bass guitar on this track. Yeah, he's a bassist. Yeah, yeah. he played with Michael Jackson a lot of. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, Bon Jovi's first attempt at a Western look though came in '86 when the band had plans to name their third album "Wanted," after the song "Wanted Dead or Alive." Photographer Mark Weiss did a photo shoot of the band as if they were Wild West cowboys on the run, but the shots from that session show that they weren't even close to pulling it off. They looked more Jersey Shore than Jesse James. So they ended up retitling that album Slippery When Wet and abandoning the cowboy motif. And the rest, you can say, is history. So. Yeah, I mean, when a Dead or Alive is one of those songs, it's almost become a cliche that people that don't like Bon Jovi like that song. Yeah. And I fit in that category. You don't like Bon Jovi? I don't. Okay. I Why? mean, now, songs like Runaway and Living on a Prayer, are they fun? You know, if you're at a party and someone puts living on a prayer and everyone's singing along, of course it's fun, right? But to me, it's just it's just pop hairband stuff. But See, I never consider Bon Jovi a hairband. Well, no, but I think they, they kind of got lumped into that, kind of like Def Leppard did. Unfairly, but yeah. And and uh, But One Dead or Alive was just stripped down rock. It's awesome. Yeah. In fact, they inspired, that song inspired the whole MTV Unplugged, right? Because I think they played that Unplugged. I believe so. On one of the award shows. Yeah. And that's where one of the execs got the idea of doing a show of Unplugged music. Yeah. Now, I've, I've always liked Bon Jovi. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it's Jersey's number two son. Sure. Uh, you yeah. know, um, I mean, I respect it. I, every time I say that, I feel like like a music snob. It's just not for me. It's not for me. Yeah, no, which I get. Um, I get. I mean, and it is. It's pop rock. You know, a lot of people listen. To, a lot of people say that Bon Jovi is, you know, just a harder, you know, rock band. They're they're not. It's, yeah. Well, it's, especially Slippery Wet was really pop. Yeah, it's it's pop rock at its best. But no, I've always I've always liked Bon Jovi. And part of that may be because of the production. I don't want to blame the band, right? Because um, the producer determines a lot. And so if they're a young band and they're put in the studio and the record company wants, you know, a hit, it's going to sound polished. They're going to add all sorts of keyboards and stuff to it, which is what they did. So I probably would have liked Bon Jovi a little bit better had they maybe gone down the path of like the Black Crows, yeah. you know, and kept it a little more 
Straight. I guess, yeah, I could say that. Yeah. Your turn. All right, another classic. I'm just bringing out the classics today. Uh, I Shot the Sheriff mm. by Bob Marley and the Wailers from 1973 from his album Burnin'. I Shot the Going back to 1973 for this classic reggae song, which the next year was taken to number one by, of course, Eric Clapton, yeah. who really made this song a hit. Um, the song itself, again, we've been kind of talking about different ways that these songs fit the criminal theme. And we've you know, had shoplifting, we've had murder, um, we've had uh, lots of things in between. Um, we talked about whether the Duke boys last week were justified uh, in their crimes. Here's another example where you could have a little bit of a debate, right? Yep. Because the song is about social justice. And uh, although the narrator is clearly guilty of murder, he feels that his killing was justified, even if it means that he must pay with his life. Uh, in fact, in 1992, this song was cited by lots of people who were supporting Ice-T when the controversial cop killer came out. And boy, if you remember that, if you were around for that, uh, he appeared on Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, EIST did with a, with a cop outfit. People said it was inappropriate. It was disrespectful to police that it was going to somehow, um, you know, encourage violence against law enforcement. But the supporters said, yeah, but no one said that when Bob Marley and Eric Clapton did I Shot the Sheriff. Yeah, but there's a difference between putting it in, in the context of, I think it's it's just Clapton and Bob Marley are, they're much softer, you know. It's well, the, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying I have any problem. No, no. with, with cop killer. But I, you know what but, I think? I think there's a racial element to it. Well, of course there is. Uh, no, the rap music, rap music. Now, even yeah. though obviously, um, you know, Bob Marley was uh, Jamaican American, I guess, right? Not officially African American, but or Jamaican, Jamaican. I don't know. That's weird. He's black. And uh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I'm trying to use the, the right label here. I, I know. I, uh, I respect but, that. But uh, either way, yeah, um, it wasn't race in that sense. But I think it was racial in the sense of the type of music. Rap music, of course, was under attack. Right. And it fit. I also think originally Bob Marley, was, it was going to be I, I Shot the Police. And he was encouraged to tone it down a little bit. So he chose Sheriff. And I think Sheriff conjures up for some people images of old Western kind of thing. And I think that's that's the thing. Which it's, is probably why I got a, why I got a pass, even yeah. though really it's not about an old West Sheriff. Oh, no, no, no. no. It, it's definitely modern, modern times. Um, but there's also, you know, his story is Marley's song. It, it's framed in such a way that, you know, you, you're given the... 
you're given the imagery and it is very clear that it's a personal vendetta. Right. You know, it, right. cop killer is, it's just a different take. Yeah. You know, it's an entirely different take. Cop killer was an attack on the establishment. Exactly. And, and this, yeah, we, but even though it was about social justice, it wasn't more personal. Yeah, it was just, yeah, Sheriff John yeah. Brown always hated me. You know, not, right. not hated me because of my color, but he just always hated right. me. Gotcha. So, yeah. And Clapton, of course, is white, so you, he's going to get a pass on it regardless. Well, yeah, that's just typical, right? Bob Marley does the version of the song, the reggae version. It doesn't chart in the U.S. Yeah. Um, Clapton, you know, culturally appropriates it with with love, you know. I'm yeah, not saying well, yeah, it yeah. Yeah. Um, but took it to, you know, took it to number one in the U.S. So. Yep. Absolutely. Might have something to do. Of course, he did it, like you said, he added a more of a rock element, even though the reggae is still there. Yeah. Um, I love the bass groove at the end. It's one of those. Every time I hear a song that I want to learn on bass, I just I I, I mark it, and that, that's one that this week I'm going to be mm. learning because it's a great it's a great bass line all throughout. But at the end, it really kind of highlights the, the bass line, and it's cool stuff. It's awesome. All right, all right. My number eleven is Tweeter and the Monkey Man by the Traveling Wilburys. Comes from their 1988 album, Volume One. Traveling Wilburys, in case you don't remember, or if you are one of our younger listeners, they were they were one of the first real supergroups, and I, I mean that at the like at the highest uh, tier. Um, coming together organically uh, were Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan, and Jeff Lynne of ELO, and their friend George Harrison, uh, and they recorded just a lot of. Americana, country, rock. Did you know who was supposed to be in the band? Del Shannon. Del Shannon, but then he killed himself. Yeah, Del yeah. Shannon, and they replaced him with Orbison, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that whole crew kind of hung out at the time, wrote, played on each other's records and so forth. In fact, you mentioned Volume 1. The second album from Traveling Wilburys was Volume 3. Right. And a lot of people think they were just being quirky. But really... Full Moon Fever. Full Moon Fever from Tom Petty was they considered the second Wilburys album because they all contributed to it. Yep. Yep, yep. Well, the song that I've chosen, Tweeter and the Monkey Man, uh, it was actually the B-side for uh, the single uh, Handle with Care, which uh, they had so much fun making that they decided it should be part of an entire album. And about a month later, they set up shop at the house of Dave Stewart, their mutual friend, Eurythmics member. And using Stewart's home studio, they wrote and recorded nine more songs in less than two weeks, including Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Which I believe Dylan sings um, he does. lead on. Yeah. Uh, a lot of their songs, each one takes a verse. Right. Or, you know, there's a lot of harmonies. Yeah. Um, Twitter and the Monkey Man, it's, this, this is as close to a Dylan song as you're going to come. Right. Um, and, you know, 
outside of his solo recordings, of course. It's credited to all five group members, but yeah, it was mostly written by Dylan. Tom Petty, I think, played a hand, but you know, Dylan definitely took control. He sings lead. Um, you know, Dylan has always come up with a lot of eccentric characters in his songs. Mr. Jones, Jack of Hearts, Dr. Filth among them, but here he comes up with uh, two of my favorite, Tweeter and the Monkey Man. You know, the duo, they're criminals on the run, pursued by an undercover cop, but in a twist, the cop's sister saves them and the cop ends up dead. You know, it's just a great story. It is just a great story. According to George Harrison uh, in the documentary, The The True History of the Traveling Wilburys, there were a lot of references to Americans, or to Americana rather, in this song that he and Jeff Lynne, they were the two English members of the group, they didn't understand this song at all. They just didn't <laughs> get it. Harrison said he and Lynn, they did, the song made no sense to them whatsoever. Petty and Dylan uh, were writing the lyrics by singing them. And they, they, you know, they had a tape recorder with them. They, and they would sing, stop, play it back, and then they would transcribe the words. Uh, Dylan then went into the vocal, the vocal booth, apparently, with the transcribed lyrics, sang them through and changed a bunch of lines on the spot. Of course. Yeah. Rewriting the song right there in the booth. Harrison, you know, he's no stranger to genius at work. He was, he said he was amazed by what Dylan did and how he did it. But um, the chorus, you know, and the walls came down. It started out as a verse lyric that Dylan wrote, but didn't use, actually. Um, and George Harrison and Jeff Lynn, um, they were the two that suggested that he use it. So, yeah, I just, it's, it is, it is, I think, my favorite song on volume one. I'll go back and listen uh, a little more to it, because I remember I loved that album, but that was one that I would skip. Really? Yeah. You're a Dylan fan, too. Oh, I am. I am. I wasn't back then as okay. much as I am now. That would, that would make sense. So I think maybe going back and revisiting it, I didn't I didn't go back and listen to it for the show because I knew it well enough from, from listening right. to it. But at the time, it just wasn't one of my favorites. Fair enough. But I do remember it because the name was obviously well, very yeah. distinct. It's a, yeah, without question. Yeah. All right. Very good. I'm glad you included that. I believe I'm up to my last one. You are. All right. Well, um, Last week, we talked about uh, Morrissey and shoplifting, or culturally shoplifting, whatever right. that means, spiritually shoplifting. This one's just about stealing stuff. It's Been Caught Stealing by Jane's Addiction from 1990 off their album Ritual de lo Habitual. Mine. Mine, oh mine. Hey! 
the band's biggest hit. This is the this is the song that everybody will remember Jane's Addiction for. Uh, it was it was huge. Uh, it went to number one for four weeks on the Modern Rock Billboard uh, chart. And in a way, you know, everybody thinks you know Nirvana, you know, changed everything overnight. And and don't get me wrong, Nirvana did change things overnight. Um, I think in one single they pretty much killed um, all the hair bands. Thank you, Kurt. But <laughs> every week, <laughs> it's not it's not like alternative music and um, and, and modern rock uh, wasn't a thing. And this is proof. Of course, this came out before Nirvana, and it, it, it you can tell when you listen to it. It has it has the rock. Uh, it has the alternative. You can tell that it was it was leading to where where grunge would go, and, and when it kind of um, took the world by storm. Um, of course, Perry Farrell went on to do Pornos for Pyros, and and he was the the brainchild behind uh, Lollapalooza and, and all of that. So there, there's a lot there's a lot with Jane's addiction that we can talk about. But I'm just going to focus on this song here. Um, the, the video I remember specifically uh, it had lots of different characters, including band members um, running through. Um, the grocery store comically and, and trying to stuff food, you know, up their shirt and stuff. It actually won the MTV Best Alternative Video Award that year. And then, this was new to me in my research, at the very beginning of the song, there's that rhythmic dog barking. Right. And I always assumed that, you know, they had recorded and planned that. They did not. Really? Yeah, Perry Farrell had adopted a rescue dog from the shelter named Annie, and he brought her to the studio one day. And he went into the vocal booth to record the lyrics for this song. And if you listen closely before the begin, before the song begins, you can hear the sound of, of a dog, I, I, maybe petting the dog or whatever. And then he goes in to record, and that's when the barking. So it was completely spontaneous. And they just decided to leave it in on the track. Huh. And to me, that's the most distinct feature of the song, is that, that dog barking from the very beginning. The song is listed in, the, in Rock Hall's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. They don't actually rank those. They just listed 500. But I definitely can see how this is a very transitional song from the you know new wave alternative that I want to say dominated the 80s because it didn't in America, but dominated the alternative uh, market for music in the 80s. Kind of a transition from that into what we would see uh, as grunge in the early 90s. I always liked Jane's Addiction. You know, in fact, I almost used Jane Says last season when we did our oh girl, yeah our girl, yeah. girls names it's a good song tape. yeah um yeah it's just good stuff all the way around um all right so i am up to my very last my very last uh selection right mm-hmm. all right well i decided to end this uh with a an execution if you will uh we been talking about criminals this whole time. I thought, why not end the mixtape with a, you know, a criminal? Uh, Ride the lightning by Metallica. No, okay, no, no. I thought that would have been a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. I, I went actually with an older song. This one comes from 1962, so it's outside of that wheelhouse. Hey Tucker song, by Indigo X. Girls. I'm just naming all the Death Row songs I can think of. Okay, sorry. Want to keep going? No. <laughs> Okay. Uh, now, this one actually comes from poet Shel Silverstein. Ah. Uh, it comes from the album Inside Folk Songs, um, which the album is, uh, it contains an eclectic mix. There are songs on that album that are very kid-friendly, and there are songs on the album that are not at all kid-friendly. Uh, the song's title is 25 Minutes to Go. Well, outside myself. I got 25 minutes to go 
And in 25 minutes, I'll be in hell. I got 24 minutes to go. Well, they give me some beans for my last meal. 23 minutes to go. And you know nobody asked me how I feel. I got 22 minutes to go. So I wrote to the governor the whole damn bunch of 21 minutes to go. And I call up the mayor and he's out to lunch. I got 20 more minutes to go. Well, the sheriff says, boy, I want to watch you die. 19 minutes to go. And I laugh in his face and I spit in his eye. I got 18 minutes to go. Well, I call up to the warden. Hear my plea, 17 minutes to go. He says, call me back in a week or three. You got 60 minutes to go. The song is literally gallows humor. I mean, it's sung by a man who is awaiting his own execution by hanging. And each verse consists of two lines, okay? Of which the first line is anything from humorous to poignant. And the second line is a minute by minute countdown. Uh, the song is similar in concept to another Silverstein song, Boa Constrictor. That one is one that was written for children. Um, like Boa Constrictor, it presents the point of view of someone who's experiencing a calamity in real time, uh, composing and singing as the events unfold with a fatal conclusion. Uh, Boa Constrictor, like 25 Minutes to Go, they both appear on this album, Inside Folk Songs. Johnny Cash actually uh, recorded, he covered both of those songs. Uh, Cash uh, did a cover of 25 Minutes to Go, uh, where it differs most notably just by having omitted some of the lines. Uh, Cash did, however, perform 25 Minutes to Go at a concert at Folsom Prison. A year later, though, Cash scored big at a prison concert with another Silverstein composition that you included last season. Boy Named Sue. Boy Named Sue, yep. So I thought, why not? And... I was going to go Silverstein anyway, but of course I couldn't do cash because you were doing Folsom Prison Blues. Um, but Silverstein's, man, I tell you what, when you hear him and when you see him, if you grew up on Where the Sidewalk Ends and A Light in the Attic, he is not what you are expecting, you know, at all. No, no. no. He's, he's, he's got a dark side. He's though. very dark, yeah. Um, and you can see that in, in even in his poetry books for oh, children. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are, there are poems that are kind of very they're very stark and frankly a little frightening um but i love it i've always been a silverstein fan his that his poetry that he you know self that he recorded you know himself uh performing i i've never heard one i didn't like and 25 minutes to go i just i knew this was one i wanted to to have on the mixtape so i i went ahead and put it on perfect 
All right. Well, that completes our choices, right? It does. 24 songs, 12 on side A, 12 on side B, which means now we need to take a pause and decide what order we're going to put these in. Again, if you're new to the show, we like to take the songs and put them as if they were a mixtape so that they flow together nicely, either thematically or, or through the composition, the songs. You know, Sometimes we go musically, sometimes we go thematic. But we're going to come up with an order so we can make our Spotify playlist for you to listen to, and we will be right back after this. All right, and we're back, and this was a tough one. Yeah, it was. Um, much tougher than I thought it'd be. <laughs> so, um, It's not going to be our neatest mixtape. Uh, it's not bad. Not bad by any stretch, but it's just, I can't find, I, I don't know, we're, we're struggling to find just the right combination. I don't think the right combination really exists. We're too eclectic. But that is okay, because what we have is gonna work just fine. Um, here, then, is your criminal mixtape. We start side A with I Fought the Law by The Clash. That leads into Renegade by Styx, followed by Superfly by Curtis Mayfield, then Smuggler's Blues by Glenn Fry. In the number five spot, we have Blaze of Glory by John Bon Jovi, followed by Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash, Goodbye Earl by The Chicks, Hot Rod Lincoln by Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen, followed by Small Time Drug Dealer by Wally Pleasant, Tweeter and the Monkey Man by Traveling Wilburys, I Shot the Sheriff by The Wailers, and we end side one with Smooth Criminal by Michael Jackson. Oh, that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Side B, we begin with Copacabana by Barry Manilow, followed by Maxwell Silver Hammer by The Beatles. Then The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia by Vicki Lawrence, followed by Been Caught Stealing by Jane's Addiction. Shoplifters of the World Unite by The Smiths, followed by Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, Don't Download the Song by Weird Al Yankovic, followed by The Ballad of Billy the Kid by Billy Joel, then Peter and Butter Conspiracy by Jimmy Buffett, theme from the Dukes of Hazard, Good Old Boys by Waylon Jennings, that leads into Nebraska by Sprout by... By Bruce Springsteen, still tripping over my words. And we end our mixtape with 25 Minutes to Go by Shel Silverstein. Boy, that was eclectic. I mean, we're always eclectic, but wow. I, we, we have everything here except, well, we really don't have any jazz. Yeah, jazz doesn't lend itself to criminal no, not, as much. No, not really. <laughs> no. Um, farther sing from it, actually. Um, and we have some numbers that are bluesy, but we don't have blues either. But I mean, as far as we have very nearly every subgenre of pop rock and country here so it's it's just it shouldn't be too difficult but but it was <laughs> nonetheless <laughs> we made it work so awesome all right what are we going to name this thing yeah oh uh, boy i don't know uh what do you think i don't know um i could just say i fought the law perfect work <laughs> yeah that works all right that works Done. that was easy that was very easy that balances out the uh the difficulty of arranging them. All right, folks, again, thank you for joining us. Um, next, well, in two weeks, we're going to talk about two hit wonders. Two hit wonders, yeah. Did we do a one-hit wonder show already? Nope. No, we just decided to start with two. That, that works. Yeah, so. Yeah, me. reach out to us if you have an idea for a uh, theme for a mixtape. You can find us at podcast at genxmixtape.com. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group and a Facebook page. We're also on Instagram, kind of on TikTok, and not really yet. That hasn't gone off the ground. We also have a Patreon, so if you appreciate what we do and you want to donate and kind of 
uh, help us offset some of the costs so we can bring this uh, podcast to you, you can go to our website, genxmixtape.com. And right now we just have one tier, just a $10 a month tier. Um, we would appreciate the support, but uh, not necessary because we're going to do it either way. So thank you for being a loyal listener. You know, I was thinking. Yeah. We don't have it on our list, but instead of I fought the law, I think I like breaking the law. Okay, yeah. Breaking Judas the law, Priest, that's fine too. Breaking the law? Yep. I mean, I know they're close, but breaking the, I mean. Yeah, the breaking the law is criminal. Yeah. yeah. I fought the law. That, that, yeah, could, yeah. that could be injustice. That could be. Gotcha. You know, I cool. like breaking the law. All right. That's good. All right. Sorry. We'll have sorry. Butt, leave us a butthead. <laughs> breaking the law. Yeah. Breaking the law. Then we just had to push the little daisies and make them. Why did it come ween. up? Make yeah. it, push and make it, I think it's come up. I haven't heard ween in years. Um, nonetheless, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor. That would be Jay Callahan Painting. If you live in Northeast Ohio and you need uh, you need something painted, your house, indoor, outdoor, does not matter. Uh, look for Jay Callahan Painting on Facebook. Uh, she does an incredible job. And um, I can actually give you a testimonial she's painted for me a few times she she will not let you down and i think that's it all right well thanks for joining us again and uh we will like i said be back in two weeks hot funk cool punk even if it's old junk another mix of memories awaits in two weeks but until that time we need you to press pause lift that needle and hit eject and we will see you on the flip side (laughs) 